Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of Stratford Talks, our monthly podcast. I'm Ben Sheen. And I'm Marla Moore. And we're your hosts for today. And in the first part of our show, we'll be speaking with Stratford's Scott Stewart to discuss the immediate aftermath of the San Bernardino shootings and the effect on the US presidential race. And then next up, we have Stratford's Chief Intelligence Officer, John Sather, who'll be discussing some of his favorite books when it comes to geopolitics, history, espionage, and tradecraft. If you have questions or comments for our analysts or suggestions for other topics you'd like to hear on this podcast, please be sure to send them to us with an email at stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback. Or as always, you can connect with us on social media, on Facebook, or through Twitter, where we're at Stratfor. And now, let's get on with the show. Our first segment today was inspired by an email we received from a reader a few weeks ago. This is coming in the wake of the Paris attacks and the shootings in San Bernardino, California. And this particular reader wanted to know, how can a democracy balance its need for security with its need for human rights? And he's particularly interested in the case of Israel, but as he noted, this is an issue that's a great concern in all democracies. And it struck me that as we go into 2016, which is an election year in the United States, and we've recently seen elections in France that immediately followed the Paris attacks, this is an issue that is particularly troublesome in the current political environment. And so, Scott, I'd like to ask you just to open up with some thoughts on that. Yeah, I I think that we always have to be careful making any decision out of panic and of terror because it it tends to lead to to bad decisions. You know, we've certainly seen that in in the U.S. in the past where it was kind of the hysteria after uh, 9-11 was really one of the driving factors that led us into the Iraqi invasion, uh, which I think in retrospect, most people think really was ill-advised. But certainly when it comes to decisions made in panic about civil liberties, uh, you know, that, that's the same type of thing that people need to be concerned about. Uh, we certainly don't want to give away our, our personal liberties and whether that and, and it's almost at this point, uh, it's kind of like both sides of of the aisle uh, in, in this country are, are kind of pushing for things. You have a lot of liberals pushing for more gun control. We, we need gun control to, to end this. And certainly, you know, as we've seen elsewhere, gun control in itself is not going to end terrorism. Even countries that have fairly strict gun laws uh, in Europe are having issues with armed assaults right now. And on the other hand, uh, you know, we have people uh, who are calling for more intrusive programs to, to monitor people's, people's communications, and specifically citizens. Uh, right now, there's a, a lot of restrictions on what the NSA, for example, can do with citizens or anyone who's considered a U.S. person under some of those laws. And it's really not, you know, I don't believe a great idea to give up any of those sorts of liberties. And, and of course, uh, you know, I wrote a piece talking about this whole idea of, you know, banning Muslims, or even as was suggested, maybe registering Muslims. And uh, that's really a slippery slope that, that I don't think any democracy wants to go down. And, and certainly not in the United States, where we're really founded on these principles of uh, you know, equal rights for all people and the fact that uh, you, know, you have freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. So I, I do think that there's a danger in acting in either of these ways, uh, being you know, pushed by any of the political parties, to, to try to get their kind of their, their pet projects and, and using fear as uh, as a motivator to, to get things that they're passionate about passed. I guess the, the bigger question remains of how you actually manage to assuage the public's fears or at least their perceived fears 
and as a government be seen to do something uh, decisive, and yet at the same time not actually crack down on minority groups that could potentially become bigger problems in the future. I'm specifically thinking back uh, in British history when actually you saw uh, a lot of the, the Irish Republican movement evolve and there was a huge uh, clampdown on the Catholics, which actually led to, to greater problems further down the line when it came to, uh, to fighting that campaign. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Ben. And I, I think that it really comes from, you know, it's, it's leadership. You need to have the, the leadership that can explain what's going on, that can assure the people that, hey, this is bad and we've had some deaths, but this is not a strategic threat to the United States. Uh, it's a tragedy, uh, but we're going to continue on. We're going to be bold. And that's where you needed kind of like a, you know, a Ronald Reagan or a Maggie Thatcher type leader to be able to stand up and say, hey, you know, we're going to stand firm in the face of this. We are not going to allow these terrorists uh, to cause us to, to make decisions that are poor and to give away our human rights. So I, I think that, that you know, the, the leadership is really critical and crucial there. Well, it's been very interesting just here within the last few weeks because immediately after the attacks in Paris, there were two rounds of elections in France and the Le Front National really scored some victories. They didn't achieve outright power, but they are certainly more of a player than they have been in the past. And immediately after the San Bernardino attacks, we had a Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, calling to ban all Muslims, at least temporarily, from entering the country. And I mean, it's hard not to have an opinion of of some description or another when you hear a candidate for president making a call like that. But in this particular environment, it seems rather dangerous when you have a political discourse that is so skewed in favor of the fear factor. And, and I understand the need for national security and, and strong national defense. But when it's taken so far off center, it becomes acceptable to to promulgate certain ideas that I think actually are very much in, in tension with the idea of democracy and civil rights, even though, as we've had readers point out to us, immigrants don't have the rights of citizens. And, and yes, we absolutely do understand that. But there's something that's at odds with the founding principles of this country when you hear national discourse that's tilting in that direction. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a, a terrifying thing. And it is against the, the principles that we were founded upon. Basically, when you look at, uh, you know, our, our Declaration of Independence, uh, you know, all men are created equal and are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. Yeah, I mean, th- those were the foundation of our country and our citizenship, but it's also saying that they should apply to everybody and that as Americans, uh, we need to, to uh, treat people equally. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to, uh, you know, uh, bend over backwards, make ourselves vulnerable to attack. We need to have strong counterterrorism programs. We, we need to use all the levers in, in, in the terrorism toolbox that we have. Uh, you know, law enforcement, military, uh, you know, intelligence, uh, diplomacy, financial things. Uh, we need to, to really make those, those programs as good as we can, as strict as we can uh, to prevent as many of these attacks as we can. But at the same time, we can't lose our sense of compassion for the rest of the world. And we just simply can't. It's impossible to shut off the rest of the world. When we're thinking about this concept of, of just shutting down Muslim immigration, are we talking about Muslim countries, uh, you know, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia? Uh, are we talking about Muslim uh, citizens of France and the UK and Belgium? But what about the Muslim converts who don't have Arabic names 
or Muslim names. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we are having an, an issue with in the United States right now is because of the way terrorism has changed, because of the effectiveness of our counterterrorism programs, the threat now is not emanating from these terrorist cadre that come from overseas, but it's actually emanating primarily from U.S. citizens. And if you look at the international terrorist incidents that have happened inside the United States that have been deadly since 9-11, there was only one of those incidents that did not involve a U.S. citizen, and that was a 2002 attack against the LL ticket counter in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, that was an, an Egyptian asylum seeker who was here. But every other deadly international terrorism attack in the United States since 9-11 has involved at least one U.S. citizen. So really, the, the threat is, is stemming from our own people. Uh, you know, the, the citizens who lived here, there are other family members of, of these citizens, like we saw in the San Bernardino shooting where we had the, the U.S.-born Saeed Farouk, who had his you know, wife come over, uh, who was Pakistani-born, had lived in Saudi for a while. Uh, but, but we still have that, that citizen component. So even if we were to somehow hermetically seal out all these foreign Muslims, the way that the terrorism has changed and the difficulty that they've actually had of getting trained operatives here ha- has caused the, uh, the threat to shift. So it's, it's really already here and it's too late. Scott, I think you make um, a number of really good points there, not least of which that actually the threats are as much internal as they are external. But also, I think certainly that the immediate wake of the, the most recent attacks there was a huge amount of media furore, which basically strayed into fear-mongering. And if you watched the, the news for any period of time, uh, it appeared to sort of ramp up the threat to, to what I felt was an unreasonable extent. I mean, you put it very clearly, actually, you know, there, there will be persistent threats, but they are manageable. But it seemed like there was a huge amount of fear-mongering in the, in the national media. Yeah, and, and, and that's really unfortunate because, see, what, what that does is, is it's really what I call a terror magnifier. It, it, it actually increases the impact of terrorism and, and their, their effectiveness in creating terror amongst the population. Yes, they can kill people, but it's, people lose sight of the fact it is very easy to kill someone if you want to. It's really only limited by your imagination and, and your skill level. You know, you don't need a lot of sophisticated explosive devices. You don't even need guns. Um, you know, if, if you know what you're doing, uh, you, a blunt instrument, your car, a knife, uh, it is very easy to kill people, especially if you're not concerned about escaping. And, and so we need to understand that, that there is this, you know, this low level threat from where I, I stand. You know, I'm a I'm a sheepdog type person. You know, I've spent my entire adult life, uh, you know, trying to investigate uh, terrorists, put them in jail and, and now educate people. Uh, about terrorism, uh, you know, so, so from my perspective, any death is, is one too many. However, we also need to understand that the terrorism is a fact of life. It's physically impossible to protect everyone and everything. Uh, it, it just can't happen, even in a dictatorship, uh, a place like uh, or, you know, a totalitarian state really like China. China cannot get their terrorist problem under control, no matter how many Uyghurs they kill. Uh, no matter how many they deport, no matter how many they arrest, uh, you know, the, a lot of those draconian measures are, are really creating more radicalism and terrorism. So it's just impossible to totally stop everything. So what we need to do is have perspective on it. We need to understand that, that it is a reality of life. We need to, uh, to, to educate our population. Hey, this is a problem. You need to be part of the solution. 
you know, uh, I, I'm not suggesting that we have an East German type police state where everybody's ratting everybody off. But but still, almost all of these uh, and, and it's, actually, it's not just the international terrorist cases, but indeed the domestic terrorist cases and even a lot of the uh, mass shootings. There's almost always an indication that something is going on. Uh, and, and almost in every case after the fact, you find out that someone knew something was going to happen or suspected that something was going to happen, and they didn't talk to the authorities about it. And so that's one of the things where, you know, people kind of make fun of the see something, say something programs, but but that's really something that, that we need to get out uh, to the population that, that really uh, the grassroots terrorism threat is something that can be countered by grassroots defenders neighbors, uh, community members, people that are paying attention. Uh, you know, we had a really great example of that happen up in, in uh, Waco. Uh, there was a second Fort Hood attack uh, that was going to be perpetrated. And we had this private who had deserted from the army at Fort Campbell and was going to conduct an attack at Fort Hood. And uh, he went into a gun shop to buy some smokeless powder. Uh, he's actually one of the one of the plots that was trying to replicate those uh, uh, pipe bombs that were featured in Inspire magazine. And the, uh, the gun shop clerk kind of was paying attention. He's like, hey, this guy's buying all the smokeless powder, but he doesn't know anything about reloading. So as the guy was leaving the gun shop, he wrote down the license plate, contacted the cops. The cops were able to find this guy, track him down, and there he was, you know, trying to build a, a pressure cooker bomb in order to attack soldiers at Fort Hood. So, so these kind of grassroots defenders, citizens that are paying attention and, you know, talking to the authorities can, can play a very big role. And, of course, that also extends into the Muslim community. For, for many of these Muslims, it's their kids who are being wound up by these maniacs to become suicide bombers. Um, so, so if we have a, a better program of communicating with them and reaching out to them, uh, it's, it's going to be a way to get many leads that can help thwart these kind of attacks. Actually, you touch on something that's actually extremely important and fascinating, I think, because not only have we seen the Donald Trump-like reaction of let's put a ban on all these Muslims, whereas, as you point out, changing the immigration laws isn't really going to do a lot because most of what we're seeing is armed assaults from U.S.-born terrorists. And and that is in addition to all the armed assaults from domestic terrorist causes, which are difficult to distinguish from each other in the moment. But in addition to the Trump's calls, we also saw um, a man on the tube in London with a knife uh, trying to launch an attack who was basically taunted by passersby on the spot. And I'm thinking how different the dynamic of this conversation would be if our standard response was to shame and ridicule an attacker as opposed to this knee-jerk, over-the-top, let's change all the laws and, and trounce the Constitution. No, yeah, actually, that's, that's one of the things uh, I, wrote, I wrote a piece a couple years ago. Maybe it's several years ago now, but talking about, you know, the, the mystique of the lone wolf. And, and in many cases, especially with these mentally disturbed attackers, that's one of the things that they long for. Uh, you know, they, they want to replicate, uh, you know, the, the, the notoriety that comes with being a mass killer. Um, and, and they seek that. That's why I was saying that, you know, instead of calling them lone wolves, we should call them stray mutts. Um, and, and really, you know, because if, if you look at most of these individuals, they really are losers. And that's one of the things that drives them uh to this need for notoriety, um, and whether that's you know someone that kills an actress, or that kills John Lennon, or that, that goes in and shoots up a school, uh, many of them uh, you know are seeking publicity, and, and they idolize you know the, these past serial killers. You know, you, you kind of see the idolization that goes on by these marginalized people for folks like the Columbine attackers. So, so really, by denying them 
the mystique that they seek and the notoriety that they seek in mocking them for what they are, uh, dysfunctional losers, it really does undercut that appeal. Completely. And, and that seems to be the strength of the idea behind it. That sense you can be immortalized by something you do for whatever belief. And, and as you as you mentioned before, you know, beliefs, ideas, tactics, they're incredibly hard to get rid of because it's not something tangible that you can tackle or remove. And it's often that, that idea that will galvanize somebody into action. And it might be a nationalist sentiment. It might be religiously motivated. It might be for to bring about political change. But it's those ideas that really seem to sometimes resonate with the sort of disaffected individuals who are perhaps looking for a purpose that don't have one that are very easily swayed to perhaps conduct an act of terror or violence. Yeah, and, and that's what we've really even seen with the Islamic State and, and before them, Al-Qaeda recruiting, uh, where they have a, a tendency to kind of pull in guys like Richard Reed, you know, who, who they called the Kramer of Al-Qaeda uh, because he was kind of, you know, such an awkward individual. Um, and, and a lot of the non-ethnic Muslim recruits kind of tend to be that way. I, I think that a lot of them... If you if you looked at them personality wise, I'm, I'm not a profiler or a psychologist, but they, they seem to me to be a lot of the same kind of people who have been recruited uh, by street gangs or neo-Nazi gangs, you know, skinhead gangs or even cults. Uh, they're just kind of these lost souls who are then kind of, uh, you know, love bombed and uh, given the attention that they need and given a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose that they otherwise lacked. Uh, there was a great profile done uh, in in the New York Times uh, by uh, Rukmini Kalamaki, who uh, went out and interviewed this this young girl out in the Pacific Northwest who was living with her grandmother. And she had been kind of. Uh, recruited and and given this kind of attention by a jihadist in London uh, who actually uh, then talked her into converting to Islam and pledging allegiance to the Islamic State. She was actually going to travel over to Syria then to become one of these, uh, you know, kind of Islamic State mothers who are supposed to go over and marry a jihadi and have babies for the caliphate. So, you know, just seeing that kind of lost soul uh, is really very similar to other young women who have been sucked into these different types of cults over, over the years as well. Yeah, there is absolutely uh, that, that allure for those sort of organizations. Something else I noticed as well, Scott, when the, the media carousel was, was, was going around was that actually there were, there were a lot of complaints levied at uh, the intelligence services and the security services for not having acted earlier to sort of preempt and prevent these sort of attacks. And I was always reminded of um, of actually when when the Olympics were held in London, I had a conversation with a, a friend who works in the security industry and you know, obviously the Olympics went off without pretty much a hitch. But he always said, you know, the public will never know just how many plots were successfully foiled. Um, and actually, you know, you have the, this whole industry behind the scenes that is preventing chaos from, from taking place. But actually it only takes one incident and it's very, very easy for people to, to stand up and, and point fingers and say, well, why did you allow this to happen? Well, yeah, and, and you're, you're exactly right. Uh, if, if you look, even in the United States, uh, really over the last 18 months to two years, uh, there have been something like 70 people arrested for supporting or some other connection to the Islamic State. Some of them were trying to to travel abroad. Uh, some of them were, were seeking to conduct attacks here. And many of them were, were citizens. Uh, you know, I, I think of uh, the Edmonds cousins in Chicago. Um, they were actually going to do both. One was going to travel to to Syria. The other was going to conduct an attack against the National Guard Armory in Illinois. Um, we also just had a, a, a gentleman arrested in Maryland last week 
uh, he had received $9,000 from uh, a childhood friend of his who is now with the Islamic State and was trying to fund attacks here in, in the United States. There are just so many potential actors that it's, it's just very, very difficult to pick up on all of them. Sometimes you'll, you'll be able to get intelligence from overseas. That's what, what basically broke that, that Egyptian case, was that we got a lead in that, that you know, somebody was sending money here from, from Egypt. But, but many times you're, you're not going to have those connections. Uh, I, I mean, the, the closer they're looking at the San Bernardino case now, uh, it really doesn't look like there was communication uh, with the Islamic State in any form. Even the, the initial reports that we had of some sort of public declaration of allegiance to the Islamic State by the wife on, on social media turned out to be false, apparently, according to what the FBI director said just today. So in those cases where you don't have a self-identification publicly in a way that's going to be picked up uh, by an intelligence service where there's no uh, direct contact with a known terrorist actor, it is very, very difficult for the intelligence uh, apparatus to pick up on those things because that's what they're looking at. They're looking at connections. Uh, they're looking at communication. But that's there again. That's one of the reasons why, you know, what I was talking about as far as the grassroots uh, defenders are important. You know, these people are far more likely to come into contact with a street cop or just a, a neighbor who notices something suspicious than they are, you know, some FBI uh, terrorism task force. And you touch on something which is probably a whole separate podcast in itself, which would be fascinating to to go into at some point, which is the process of self-radicalization and the forces that play into that. But I think in the main, ultimately, and I mean, Stratfor is not a political organization. We're not affiliated with the government or any political party, and uh, we don't make policy recommendations or anything of that sort. But uh, simply speaking as an American and, and not as a Stratfor employee, uh, it just seems to me that we have a politics in our country right now that's about alienation and otherness and fear. And the more that we have that alienation and less that we have engagement, the more that that plays into the self-radicalization and amplifies the threat. Would you agree? Well, actually, that's one of the strengths uh, that the United States has had as compared to Europe. Um, if, if you look at the difference between the Muslim community in the U.S. compared to that of a place like France— or, or even the UK. The Muslims here are, are much better integrated, and they just don't have the same kind of marginalization that they experience in, in Europe. And they also tend to be uh, better educated. They have better employment uh, prospects here. You just don't have the, the rampant unemployment like you do in the Bon Louis of, of Paris, uh, for example. So, so really, you know, that has been a, a positive here in the U.S., uh, you know, having, uh, you know, in, in fact, many Muslims have more religious liberty here than they do in their home countries. Well, indeed, but the fact remains that they are a far smaller segment of the U.S. population than they are in many European countries and, and certainly in the Middle East and elsewhere. I mean, they barely factor onto the map um, on a per capita basis, which I think plays into that fear factor. Yeah, that, that, that's part of it. But but obviously, the more that we do marginalize them and the more that we, uh, well, victimize them. I mean, the, 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 you know, the craziness that we have of people punching women wearing a burqa or, you know, people lighting mosques on fire with Molotov cocktails, that, that kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's just really unfortunate. And, and, you know, I believe it's un-American. I mean, I'm all for going after people who are planning terrorism, who have committed active terrorism. Let, you know, let, let's get them. 
uh, whether that means kinetically over in the Middle East or whether that means, you know, wrapping them up here uh, and, and trying them in a court of law. Uh, but, but let's not go out and victimize innocent people who have nothing to do with terrorism uh, just because of what they were, how they look. Uh, you know, that, that's just really uh, a terrible thing. And I think the sort of the sweeping trend toward Islamophobia really doesn't, you know, it certainly doesn't sit well with me because I, you know, I think back to uh, the Muslims that I've worked with in my career, you know, the brave interpreters who actually risked their life to work with coalition forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. And actually, you know, like the Afghan security forces who would fight shoulder to shoulder with Brits, Americans, Aussies, Canadians against the Taliban. And certainly a lot of, you know, the, uh, the sort of the more competent uh, forces in Iraq, a lot of the special forces guys who would routinely go out and, and take the same risks. And these are all Muslims who are actually fighting against radicalized or terrorist elements within their own countries. So actually, it, it's a dangerous, it's a slippery slope. And I think it's something that people do need to be aware of. The problems that we're seeing now is not just a problem that the United States is facing. And we, we see a lot of Islamophobia across Europe. Uh, you, know, you have figures, you know, not only uh, in, in France uh, with Le Pen's, but you also have Geert Wilders and, and other people uh, in Europe who are, you know, uh, ranting ab- about uh, Islam. Um, so it, it's it's not just here. It, it is a problem ac- across the world. I mean, obviously, where, where you have, uh, you know, where you have free speech, you're going to have to deal with that part of free speech as well. It's just where it starts taking, uh, you know, form of violence against Muslims is, is where it becomes very difficult or, or policies that are just undemocratic. All right. Well, Scott Stewart, everyone, thank you again for taking time to be with us. And, and hopefully we won't continue this with another part three next month. But uh, we definitely appreciate your time and your thoughts. Now for this next segment of the podcast, we're going to be addressing something that routinely pops up in our mailbag. We have a lot of people who write in and ask specifically, what are the books that we read at Stratfor when it comes to geopolitics, the geostrategic overview, areas such as uh, espionage or intelligence? Well, actually, we're in a position to answer this today because with us, we've got Stratfor's chief intelligence officer, John Sather, who's had a, a varied career. And I'll let Marla tell you a little bit more about that. Well, actually, we're very pleased to have John with us. He is fairly new to Stratfor, and I think that you'll be hearing a lot more from him in the future. But for now, just suffice it to say that John is our chief intelligence officer. He comes to us after a 26-year career with the Central Intelligence Agency, where he held a number of line and senior leadership positions. And we think he's the perfect guy to uh, tell you what is good reading in the intelligence and, and geopolitical sphere based on his background and actually why. So, John, thank you so much. Thank you, Marla. Thank you, Ben, too. Very pleased to be with you here today. So, John, you've put together quite the interesting list of a varied number of authors here with names like David Ignatius, Mike Morell, Barbara Tuchman. But you've also mentioned someone here by the name of BG. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about who BG is? Uh, those are the initials B and G. He is a well-known senior retired officer uh, at the agency who wrote a book it's a splendid read, and it's classified. So other than the mention of it here, just in form of saying that we have our own internal uh, very good books to read as well. There is talk, though, that someday that might, book might be declassified and published generally. So we'll be on the lookout for that, and I'll let people know. What is the statute of limitations on something like that? I have no idea. As long as we want... <laughs> But you actually, you make a really good point is that 
a lot of books that deal with sensitive materials do actually get vetted before they get released. Uh, in the UK, we've got the Official Secrets Act, and manuscripts actually have to be submitted to the Ministry of Defence before they can be published. BG's book is written only for internal consumption, and so therefore, you know, there may will come a day when the right parts of the book are released. The, the vast majority of it are released for general public reading, which gives a very good insight into the ethos and the truth of how the agency and intelligence operatives work in, in the real world. For our podcast audience, why don't we take a look at some of the books that are out there in the public realm that they might be able to uh, take a look at in the coming year for themselves? Do you have any favorites in that category? Well, I do, and um, I've sort of sketched out my views of uh, favorite books in terms of uh, fiction and nonfiction, historical fiction, and also uh, books in the fiction category of espionage. So those are broad rubrics under which to put these books because there's a lot of crossover in them. But we'll say starting with the author's names of nonfiction on my list uh, are Mike Sulik, David Hoffman, Ben McIntyre, uh, John Rizzo, and Mark Lowenthal, and the former deputy director of CIA, Mike Morell. But the authors in history uh, that I really enjoy, um, no headlines to anyone, I'm sure there's a lot of people that enjoy these, but are specifically, you know, in the context of my ongoing longtime interest in geopolitics, geostrategy, uh, how the world has worked in history, and how we continue to evolve even to the present to make some of the same mistakes made 2,500 years ago. But uh, long story short, the authors in history that are on this list are Will Durant, uh, Barbara Tuchman, and authors in leadership, Ulysses Grant, uh, Special Forces retired General Stanley McChrystal, author Rod Pyle. I don't know if you've heard of him, but I'll mention him. And then finally, uh, in terms of an eclectic, uh, different non-Intel book recommendation, but one that does talk about change, geopolitics, geostrategy, is uh, a little-known author named Thomas Crum. Um, authors on the list of fiction include David Ignatius, as you mentioned, Jason Matthews, Nelson DeMille, and um, in Will Durant, uh, Story of Civilization, Volume 3, particularly the chapters on the fall of Rome. Uh, he and his wife uh, wrote an 11 or 12, I think it's 11 volume series of the story of civilization. So a minor uh, sort of a minor undertaking. undertaking. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but in any event, this this third volume um, does talk about in areas that I'm very interested in, in terms of mass migration of humans, of people, of our people, of our age. And in that context, specifically the fall of Rome and uh, what are the conditions that led toward the fall of Rome? We all know about the, uh, the lead pipes that they used, uh, the brilliance and the extremely interesting intellect that they brought to all their challenges of the day and plumbing and uh, the aqueducts and so forth. But Durant gets into an area that is very interesting in terms of the sort of factors that diluted the true Roman character and suggests that 
well, there's a lot of interesting, relevant pieces for a geopolitical world that, that makes sense to us in today's context. I wonder, you mentioned the mass migration of peoples, and it seems to me that sometimes we pick up these themes that are recurring throughout history, and we're in, in such a period right now with mass migrations of peoples. Is there any particular insight that you took away from that that you find applies in, in today's day and age? Well, I mean, I think that's interesting, and that's kind of the perspective that I'm looking at it or reading it as well, and that is uh, there's there's much of what we do now uh, in our global life that uh, has occurred in the past and has had significant repercussions, lasting repercussions, that Durant and his wife are very skillful in uh, exposing. The book, the series, I think, was completed in the late 40s, so it's been around for a while, but the subject matter lives forever. The next author is Barbara Tuchman. She's, there's several books that she's written, really, and they're all very good. Um, but the one that I put on this list is called The March of Folly. And um, the book's foreword states that, as context for why she's on this list, is the pursuit by governments of policies contrary to their own interests, despite the availability of feasible alternatives. And that, again, is an issue that speaks to us of history's lessons, but also what's specifically relevant to us in today's world. Next on the list would be Stanley McChrystal. It's a book, most recent book that he's written. came out uh, just several months ago, maybe six months ago. It's called Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World. Another book in the leadership category, irrelevant to our organization here in Stratfor and and, and government, and more broadly, is a book by Rod Pyle called Innovation the NASA Way. It's so great. And, um, you know, the idea being NASA has landed two rovers on Mars, essentially amazing capability to first know and have the budget and wherewithal to do so, but also to actually put it in practice, landing one in a bouncing ball and another one in a fabulous mechanism that was at first dis disputed or dismayed by others uh, that you could never do that. But they, they did, and they landed something about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle on the surface of Mars, and it's still running around today. So it really speaks to the idea of innovation, creativity, uh, and allowing that to flourish. It's an incredible book. Donald Alexander is another one in the uh, leadership category, relevant in, in my history coming to this point in, in Stratfor. It's called The Character of a Leader, and the bottom line of which is um, the importance to aspire and strive, and perhaps to fail, and then to strive again and conduct ourselves with integrity, courage, and good judgment in whatever field we're in, but particularly relevant in the intel world. These are all great picks. I mean, there's that fantastic quote from... Um the March of Folly, which which I love, which sort of popped up, which is the power to command frequently causes failure to think, which is uh, which definitely resonates. Yeah, exactly. And it's not like it was invented, you know, in the last decade. That has been prevalent throughout history, and again, one of our challenges. And venturing into nonfiction and espionage, uh, first off is Mike Sulik. He's a former boss and colleague and friend. He has written a couple of books. And the first one is called Spying in America, Espionage from the Revolutionary War to the Dawn of the Cold War. 
And the other book is called American Spies, Espionage Against the United States from the Cold War to the Present. That sounds like a two-parter series as well. Well, he is, um, it's a great read. Um, it's the the people that he describes are often, you know, um, well-known or at least known among general public. And But he goes into the detail of each character and the relevance that they played in either espionage against the United States or in the Revolutionary War to the present, or rather, you know, to the foundations of the Cold War, and gives a common man an understanding, like myself and others, uh, of the importance of these uh, individuals spying against the United States from coming from their cause, but um, uh, the repercussions that they had. So he's a historian, always has been, very interesting man. Another one after Mike Sulik is a man called David Hoffman. Uh, he's written a book called The Billion Dollar Spy, and it's a, it really is a riveting true story of one man's value to the world. And I won't give uh, anything of the book away, but it's a very interesting, very insightful, well-informed book on uh, an incredible asset, an incredible human being that worked on behalf uh, of the United States government as a citizen of another country. Uh, next book is um, by, next books really, uh, is by an author named Ben McIntyre, and he's written a fascinating trilogy on, that centers on World War II era espionage and deception operations. Uh, the name of his, the names of his books are Operation Mincemeat, uh, Double Cross, The True Story of the D-Day Spies, and Agent Zigzag, A True Story of Nazi Espionage, Love, and Betrayal. Um, these operations really carried considerable risk, had the full support uh, and drive of uh, Prime Minister Churchill, and British intelligence sought tirelessly to mitigate those risks with their eyes wide open as, if, as effectively as possible. Um, but these were deception operations that uh, had a profound effect on the Nazis' ability to respond and a profound effect on the outcome of World War II. Well, you know, it's interesting when we talk about World War II, there has been such a wide range of both history and fiction that's been written about the espionage during that era, which was truly fascinating. Is there anything that, as you go down this list, you think of in terms of books that gave you particular insight or value in your career at the agency? Well, there have been so many books um, written by former heads of BSS, uh, British Secret Intelligence, and the British Secret Intelligence Service, the internal and external services, known during wartime as MI5 and MI6. These two books go into, they're primarily books on deception operations that carried significant impact during the war and after the war, the outcomes. Um, but they also make reference to several books of foundational uh, intelligence collection capability, uh, not in the terms of covert action or covert influence. And um, I'll leave it to readers to, to look at that. There have been some profound, important books. But the British in general, as you note, there are so there is a rich history and hundreds of years history and um, so much interesting insight that authors have provided historically 
there that the British public at large is very well informed, uh, more so than our American public, in what intelligence brings, my humble opinion. I'm uh, sure Ben would share that opinion as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you there. And, um, you know, one of my personal favorites is Between Silk and Cyanide by Leo Marx, who was a, uh, a cryptographer during uh, World War II, working with Special Operations Executive. And that is a real insight into, into the world and the craft as well. Exactly. Uh, next on the list is uh, by a former general counsel, acting general counsel of the CIA. His name is John Rizzo. Uh, he wrote a book, I think it came out about a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, called Company Man, 30 Years of Controversy and Crisis in the CIA. John uh, served as the agency's top legal advisor, and he writes very candidly on uh, the events that he witnessed from the inside. Another uh, gentleman on the list is a man named Mark Lowenthal. There are a lot of books by Mark, a lot of intelligence books by Mark, but specifically uh, his latest edition uh, entitled Intelligence from Secrets to Policy. This book is broadly used in graduate classrooms, undergrad classrooms as well in the United States and abroad uh, for really a foundational discussion, a candid informed foundational discussion on intelligence and analysis and the profession of same. Lastly, um, in this uh, nonfiction uh, category that we're talking about here, author Mike Morell, he's the former CIA deputy director uh, and interim director before John Brennan was appointed. Uh, he's a boss, a mentor, colleague, and he's a friend. Uh, he has written a book, also came out about six months ago, called The Great War of Our Time, The CIA's Fight Against Terrorism and Al-Qaeda to ISIS. So obviously, clearly very relevant for our historical context, for our time. I'll move quickly into fiction, uh, the author and title of the fiction books that uh, I enjoy reading for in any event. Uh, David Ignatius, all of his books really are, are really good, in my estimation, and and interesting and well-informed and relevant. And, you know, clearly he's, he has chatted with people that know. Uh, but the, the one that sticks out in my mind is, is, uh, is called Agent of Innocence, a novel. And it was required reading in our agency training in the early days. Uh, and a very brief aside on that one, while we were all reading the book years ago now, most all of our books came apart at the binding. And I suppose it was mostly from bad glue, but nevertheless, they were well-read. Another one, uh, another author in his books uh, is a man named Jason Matthews. Very neat guy, very witty. Uh, I never worked with him, but uh, he was one of the officers officers that we all knew, and for good reason, uh, especially his tradecraft and his training on tradecraft. And in that context, especially there, his team up with... Uh, a man with the initials J.B. Jason's books are Red Sparrow, and uh, his second book, uh, published over the summer, is called Palace of Treason. And then lastly on the list of fiction is Nelson DeMille and his book Charm School, and essentially all of his others as well. So, John, I have to ask, how would you rate somebody like John le Carre? Is he uh, a fairly credible author in your eyes? Yes, he is. And um, he would be on this list, too, uh, or is obviously well-informed uh, from his own experience and then certainly thereafter. I like his style very much. Uh, it's very oftentimes a little bit dreamy, but then it captures significant nuance of the day-to-day -day boredom, 
excitement, routine, nature of what intelligence collection, uh, at least in my experience in the past, is like. I think it's important to remember that actually, you know, the market for, for works of both fiction and non-fiction, looking at the, the trade, both historically and, and now, is huge. And actually, there's, there's a huge amount of published works out there. So actually being able to go through and give us some of your top picks is, is really useful because, you know, clearly this is something that the people are really, you know, intrigued by and want to find out more about. Well, thank you very much. And um, if it's okay with you guys, I'd like to hear from people that listen to this broadcast of what is on their list of interesting books relatable to geopolitics, geostrategy, uh, send, send us, send me uh, an email and include yours, and then we'll go from there, you know. Right. So you heard that, everyone. We're now crowdsourcing your favorite list of best geopolitical and intelligence books on the market. And if you have comments to send to us in that regard, please send them to stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback. And as you've been listening to this discussion, I need to make it clear that this is really only a partial list of John's favorite books, but he has very kindly offered to send the entire list uh, to anyone who's interested in reading that. Uh, please be sure to send us that email to www.strap4.com slash podcast slash feedback and mention John's favorite reads. And don't forget, you can always reach out to us over Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or anywhere you can find Strap4 on social media. I guess all that's left to say is have a fantastic 2016 and we look forward to hearing from you.